If you can turn to Revelation, you don't have to stand, but Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, it's in the back of the Bible. It's the very last book. Revelation chapter 5. Uh, verse 11 from verse 14 says this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and the glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, remove me out of the way this evening. Provide for us the means of grace that you have given to us through your word. Sanctify us this evening. Help us understand, Father, what the intention was and why you sent your Son. Help us understand, Jesus, the extent of your atonement. And help us, Holy Spirit, understand how all of this works together practically. Like I said, remove me out of the way, Father. Help me speak to your people. Help your people understand and know uh, this wonderful doctrine of limited atonement. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, question, friends. Who did Jesus die for? Um, if you have a piece of paper, why don't you write it on a piece of paper? Who do you think Jesus died for? Now, the majority of Christians across this world, or for, majority, for the majority of Christians across this world, their answer would be, well, that's a silly question, because Jesus died for the entire world. Raise your hand if you grew up hearing that. Jesus died for every single person who's ever lived. Jesus died for everybody. This, for many, is basic Christianity, is it not? In fact, it's one of the first things you learn as a Christian, that Jesus died for everyone. In fact, the most common saying in evangelism is what? Jesus loves you. He died for you. Friends, this evening, we've come to the most controversial letter in the acrostic tulip. Limited atonement. We've come to the most controversial doctrine when we speak about the doctrines of grace. If there is any reason that many reject Calvinism, it's this doctrine that we've come to this evening. For many of us, this was the biggest hill to climb in terms of accepting the doctrines of grace. John Wesley said, the whole tenor of the New Testament is slightly contrary to definite atonement. Definite atonement is basically a better way of saying limited atonement, okay? Definite atonement. And that the doctrine contained a horrible blasphemies. 
Hear this. He said that limited atonement or definite atonement presented Christ as a hypocrite, a deceiver of people, a man void of common sincerity and represented God as more cruel, false and unjust than the devil. Um, Burlington D. Burlington Knox says limited atonement is a textless doctrine. No biblical, no biblical text states that Christ died only for his elect. But several texts state that he died for all. In vivid terms, the doctrine of limited atonement truncates the gospel by sawing off the arms of the cross too close to the stake. It's not wide enough. It's too narrow. And lastly, and most startling, and the, I think the most startling claim uh, comes from J.B. Torrance uh, when he essentially says, in the incarnation of Jesus, when the eternal Son of God became man, flesh, Christ, and hear this, Christ is united with all humanity, not merely the elect, so that everything he achieves in his atonement, it, he necessarily achieves for all. These men only echo what many think of limited, what many think about limited atonement. Uh, for many, limited atonement is what draws people away from Calvinism and Reformed theology altogether. What do you mean Jesus didn't die for everyone? But for some like myself, limited atonement is what intrigued me toward the doctrines of grace. Before I was ever a Calvinist or held to Reformed theology and saints, uh, Calvinism and Reformed theology are not one and the same thing. So you can be a Calvinist, but you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily be Reformed. Reformed is a whole nother system of thought, um, okay? That's, but you can also say that but Calvinism is sort of the gateway to Reformed theology, okay? But before I was ever a Calvinist or held to Reformed theology, late at night, I was in my room, trying to answer the very question I proposed to you in the beginning. Who did Christ die for? And the answer that I came to was not the answer that's taught in churches across this world. But the answer that I came to is what's actually taught in the Bible. Not a man-made, feel-good tradition, but what God has said in his word in terms of who Christ has died for. So tonight we want to explore the doctrine of limited atonement and see what the Bible has to say about who Jesus actually died for. And we'll do that in three ways or in three parts. First is the intent of the atonement. The intent of the atonement. Second, the extent of the atonement. And then third, the practical implications of Christ's atoning work. So the intent of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, and the practical implications of Christ's atoning work. So let's look at the first point, which is the intent of the atonement. And before we look at the intent of Christ's atonement, let's first answer, what does it mean to make atonement? What does it mean to make atonement? What is an atonement? Well, if we break down the word, it simply means this. Act one meant. Act one meant. Or act 
one with. Think of it as being in harmony with someone, uh, to reconcile some two parties together. Uh, to atone means to make amends, okay? to bring together, to reconcile. And we see in the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to make various atonements, okay? Various atonements, but specifically to set aside one day each year, the 10th day of the seventh month, which is called the Day of Atonement. Here the people were to bring a sin offering, which would be a spotless, innocent animal sacrifice whose blood was brought in to make atonement. In Leviticus 17.11, God had said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. As Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So these Israelites would come and bring a spotless, innocent animal, right? And the blood of the animal would atone for the sins of the people, ultimately pointing to the spotless lamb that would come and take away the sins of the people forever. So here in the Old Testament, the the innocent animal was used as a sacrifice that would make atonement by shedding the blood for the people of Israel. But I want you to notice that when these people of Israel would make or bring their sacrifice to the altar, to the high priest, they were making it for themselves. So when they would bring an animal, they weren't bringing an animal on the behalf of them and the rest of their family. But they were bringing an animal specifically for themselves. And the atonement that was made was not for the Assyrians, was not for the Babylonians, but it was for that specific Israelite. That's, that's a big to, to note in the Old Testament. So now let's consider what was the intent of the death of Jesus Christ? What was the intent of Christ's atoning work? What was the motivating factor in the death of Christ? And in order to understand the intention of the death of Christ, we have to start from the beginning and understand the covenant of redemption. In order for us to understand anything about why Christ came to this earth, why the eternal Son of God became flesh, we have to understand the covenant of redemption. Friends, the covenant of redemption is this, if you're taking notes. A.W. Pink says, The everlasting covenant or the covenant of grace, is that mutual arrangement or agreement into which the Father entered with his Son before the foundation of the world, respecting the salvation of his elect, Christ being appointed the mediator, he willingly condescending to be their head and representative. So simply, simply the covenant of redemption is this. It's the agreement between the Father and the Son, where the Son is to be the head and redeemer of the elect. The Son voluntarily took the place of those whom the Father had given to the Son. And this was all for the glory of God. This is what happened in eternity past. That the Father gave to the Son a particular people to save, to redeem. And this was all for 
the glory of God. So in other words, this has all been planned since eternity past. Christ coming, uh, the eternal son of God becoming flesh was not plan B, was not plan C. But this is Christ coming has always been the the plan of God. The son is to glorify the father by accomplishing the work his father gave him to do before he ever became flesh. The son agrees to display the father by redeeming the people that the father gave him an eternity past. And saints, when we think about Christ and when we think about what he came to do and his motivation, we must first not think of ourselves. Meaning when we say that the eternal son of God became flesh to save us, that's not the motivating factor primarily. The motivating factor first is to glorify the father. And how will God, how, how will the son glorify the father and the spirit? What is the means by which the, the son, the father and the son and the spirit are to be glorified through redeeming a people for their own namesake? Something to think about. And we see in the gospels repeatedly this, this emphasizing that Christ does everything for the glory of the father. Christ does everything to glorify his father through the work that the father has given him to do. Turn to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus explain the work that the Father gave him to do in eternity past. Remember we said that the Father gave to the Son a work to do? Well, what was that work? What was that work? John 6. And I'm going to be reading from verse 37 to 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the work of him who sent me. This is the motivating factor, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that come down from heaven. They said, is not this son the son of Joseph? Is, oh, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we see several times in this section, Jesus emphasizes that he has come down from heaven to accomplish the will of the father. That Jesus has come down from heaven to accomplish the will of the father. In verse 37, Christ speaks of the father giving to the son a specific people group. In verse 38, Christ speaks of coming down from heaven to do his father's will. In verse 39 and 40, Christ speaks of the father's will for the son is to lose none that the father had given to him, but raise him up on the last day. And everyone who will look upon the son and believe in him 
will have eternal life. Hey, brother, can you turn the air down a little bit, please? In verse 44, Christ speaks of the effectual call of the Father. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here the saints. So it's the Father's election of a specific group of people, hear this, that defines who comes to the Son and is raised on the last day. I'll say that one more time. It's the Father's election of a specific group of people that defines. We want to know, we want to know who is going to come to the Son and who is going to raise, who's going to be raised on the last day. Well, it's the people whom the Father has given to the Son. Here we see the intention of the Father in sending the Son. It's clear from John 6 that the Father does not plan to send the Son to save everyone, but rather only the people whom the Father has given to the Son. The text nowhere says the Son has come down to do the will of his Father, and that is to save the entire world. It was as to save everybody without exception and distinction, but, but rather to save his people to save the people whom the Father has given to the Son. Matthew Harmon notes here, and this was very insightful. Hear this. Particularism attends the planning, of the, the planning and the making of the atonement, not just the application. That is so insightful and so uh, useful. That particularism attends the planning and the making of the atonement, not just the application. In other words... Hear this. In eternity past, every individual that the Father gave to the Son was intimately known and personally chosen. Every individual that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past was intimately known and personally chosen. If you are saved this evening... You have been intimately known by God before the foundation of the world, and you have been personally chosen by God. So when people believe, well, so the people who believe in the gospel, the people who believe in Jesus Christ aren't just some random people who just happen to believe, but, but, but the people who believe in Jesus Christ are the people who have been predestined and elected to believe in Jesus Christ. They are the ones from eternity past that the Father has given as a love gift to the Son. Another text that speaks of the intention of Christ's death is John chapter 17. Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. John 17 verse 1 through 9 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have 
given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And hear this. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, they are yours. Here we see again the intention of the Father sending the Son. The intention of the Son was to glorify the Father. Well, how will the Son glorify the Father? By doing the work that the Father has given him to do. What is the work that the Father has given the Son to do? By manifesting the Father's name to his people in order that they will be saved. Notice verse 4 says, Jesus has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. Jesus has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. It is the totality of this work that Christ says he has finished. He has finished the work of atoning for the sins of those the Father had given to him. And now he is praying for them as their high priest in order to bring them glory. But friends, also, did you notice the personal nature of the intention of the triune God in redemption? Here in John 17, Jesus says in verse 2 and 3, to give eternal life to all whom you had given to him. And this is eternal life, that they, the ones that you have given to me, know you. In verse uh, verse 6 through 9, he says, I have manifested your name to the people, not every single person, Not the world, but to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Not every single person. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In verse 9, I'm not praying for them. I am not not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. Here we see that Jesus isn't speaking of a nameless, faceless group. People who have no identity, people who he doesn't know. But here, Christ is speaking of a very specific group for whom he is praying for. He's not praying for people who he doesn't know. He's praying for people who he intimately knows and has a relationship with. Jesus says he's not praying for the world, but only for the people whom the Father has given to him. Friends, understand this, that Christ's bloody death And his high priestly work go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. It's not as if Jesus comes to die for someone and he doesn't intercede for them. And when we think about Christ's death, we also have to attach him and his interceding high priestly work. The common notion that Jesus died and is now passively waiting for people to accept him is false, saints. This means that if Christ died for every person in the world, he must also intercede for every person in the world. Does that make sense? That if he dies for every single person in the world, then it must mean that he must pray for every single person in the world. But here, in verse 9, Jesus says, I don't pray for the world. I'm not praying, but the ones whom you have given me out of the world. So he's intentional with his praying. He's praying only for the elect. And if we say that Christ died for every single person in the world, and we know that every single person in the world is not going to be saved, is not going to heaven, then what does that mean for Jesus and his high priestly work? Ultimately, that means Jesus fails in interceding for them. 
It means that the father has a separate plan than the son. That the father elects some, but the son intercedes for all. And the father is not answering the son's prayer. So there's a sort of a, not sort of, but there is a disharmony, a, a, a disunity in the Trinity. If Jesus died for everyone in the world and his intention was to save all mankind, then why would he refuse to pray for the entire world? Simply put, why would he not pray for everyone in the world to be saved? But here in John 17, he prays for only those who the Father has given to him, only those who have been chosen. J.C. Ryle says this, this special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided with, with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him because he never liveth to make intercession for them. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them and his prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. When Jesus fell, never to rise again, while Peter fell, but repented and was restored. The reason of the difference lay under the words of Christ to Peter. I have prayed for thee that thy faith faileth not. If, if you have any doubt in your salvation, you have a high priest that is right now interceding for you, whose prayers never fail, whose prayers are always answered. Christ is praying for you. One theologian says, one is left with only three possible choices. First, Christ prays for everyone, and the Father refuses to answer Christ's prayers. This option is unscriptural and impossible, for Christ doesn't pray for all, and we are told that Christ's intercession does save to the uttermost. Second, Christ died for all, but refuses to intercede for all. This would place a gross disharmony within Christ's redemptive work. Third, Jesus died only for the elect and thus prays only for the elect. This is the only option that is scriptural and makes any sense. So it's clear from these two texts that the plan of salvation that the Father gave to the Son wasn't for everyone, but only for the elect. The Father is to be glorified through the Son's redeeming work for his people. The Son accomplishes the work that the Father had given him to do and ever lives to make intercession for them. Saints, that's the intent of the atonement, the glorification of God through the redemption of the elect. When Christ came, his intention was to save his people, not every single person in the world. Let's now look at the, the uh, second point, which is the extent of the atonement. And really, when we talk about the intent and extent of the atonement, they're really one of the same thing because they, they, inter, they, they intersect with one another. But now we're going to answer, who did Jesus die for? Now, one view says that the extent of Jesus Christ's death was for all people. Therefore, all people will be saved. In other words, they believe that God intended to save every man by the death of Christ. And since Christ died for everyone, everyone will be saved without exception. 
That is called the, or known as the universalist view. The universalist view. Everyone in the entire universe will be saved. Another view, which is the dominant view in Christianity, another view says the intent of Jesus Christ, and hear this, was to make salvation possible. Was to make salvation possible. Meaning Jesus on the cross bore the sins of every single person who would ever live only to give them, and hear this, the opportunity to be saved. Giving them the opportunity to be saved. In this view, Jesus makes everybody savable, but doesn't actually save. He makes everyone savable, but doesn't save anyone, really. This would be the Arminian view. And this is the dominant view that many hold to. And don't be so surprised, saints, because this is the view that you held to at one point in time. And then there's the third view, which is the view that we as a church hold to, which is the biblical view. And it says this. The intention of Jesus Christ was to actually purchase and redeem his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus Christ actually saves his people through his death on the cross. He doesn't potentially save. He actually saves them. The atonement was for a particular people, not a general people, not a general atonement. Uh, Christ's death was only for the elect and the elect only not for your entire world and not for everyone else. Now, I don't recommend you, um, when, you're, when you want to tell somebody about the gospel uh, or you want to talk to your friends about uh, Christianity, to say any of that. <laughs> you you got you to you wait on that one, okay? Because that right there is, is, a, is an F5 atomic bomb. Um, and, and, and it could... Really, it can do more damage than good if you don't if you don't have a good relationship and if you don't really know what you're doing and, and how to say these things. Um, but I know that that was a mouthful, and that goes against everything that we've ever been taught. That Jesus only died for the elect. What do we? Is there any scriptural evidence for that? And the Bible is filled with scriptural evidence. In fact, the Bible itself alone makes the the claim that Christ only died for his elect. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And you can just write these scriptures down. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he will save the world, no. He will save the everyone, no. He will save his people from their sins. Notice, and, and here this is the angel say, speaking here. Notice the angels say, say, he will save his people from their sins. Question, friends, who are Christ's people? The elect, right? It's, it's, it's not everyone. It's not only the Jews. It's only the elect. He came to save his people, the people whom the Father had given to him. Notice, friends, that the passage does not say that Jesus came to make salvation a possibility for every individual. The, the, the text doesn't say that. It, it doesn't say that he, she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will make salvation a possibility. But it says that he will save his people from their sins. 
not potentially save his people from their sins. Jesus saves his people from their sins. He saves them from the guilt and penalty of sin by his sacrificial death. He provides a perfect sinless life through his righteousness to satisfy the covenant of works and the demands of the law. The angel's glorious declaration regarding Jesus could not have been made if Christ did not actually secure any person's salvation but had merely opened the possibility of salvation. Meaning this, if Christ didn't actually save and secure the salvation of his people, but merely made salvation a possibility, then the angels in this passage would have lied. Because he doesn't actually save. He only potentially saves. He doesn't secure people's salvation. Let's look at another passage, John 10. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says in verses 14 to 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And hear this, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the Jews gathered around him, verse 24 through 28 says, so the Jews gathered around him and he said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I have told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here in this portion of scripture, from the very lips of the one who is going to make atonement, the one who is going to be the sacrifice, Jesus Christ explicitly teaches a particular redemption. He teaches a limited atonement, a definite atonement. Jesus does not lay down his life for the goats. He lays down his life for his sheep for his own it is for the sheep and only for the sheep that the good shepherd lays down his life here we see the design of the atonement the design of the atonement is strict is 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 definitely restricted because jesus only dies for those who have been given to him by the father matthew 26 28 for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many, for the remission of sins. Notice Jesus doesn't die for, uh, does, Jesus doesn't say that this is, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the entire world for the remission of sins. But he says, which is shed for many, not for all, but for many for the remission of sins. But also we see that the new covenant is not made with every individual. But this new covenant that is inaugurated by the shedding blood of Christ is only with the ones who Christ shed his blood for, not the entire world, but only for the ones who, who Christ has known in eternity past. In Mark 10, 45, we see the same thing. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for not all, for many. Not every individual, but for many. 
Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here we see Christ gave himself up for the church, not the entire world. But let's just say that Christ did die for everyone. Okay. How do we even make sense of this passage? I mean, this is this is done. This is preached normally in a marriage context. It would be weird if we if we say that Christ died for every single person, because we have to make sense of who's the church then. But also, does that mean that husbands are, are supposed to love every single woman who's ever lived? It can't be right. There is a specific group that is being mentioned here, the church, right? According to Ephesians 5.25 and the rest of the Bible, the attention of Christ's atonement was limited to a specific particular people. The problem with the other view, saints, is that if we say that the intention of God was to save everyone through the death of Christ, then ultimately what we have to believe and what we have to say is that people can frustrate the plans of God. If we say that it was God's plan to save every single person who's ever lived, then man, God has failed in his plans because there are people in right now in hell. If we say that Jesus came to die for every single person who's ever lived and he paid for their sins on the cross, then what is anyone doing in hell? Hell should be empty. Well, you might say, well, they don't believe. But then you have to ask, well, was the sin of unbelief not paid for at the cross? We have to say that, well, there's, there was something that didn't happen on the cross. Either Christ didn't pay for the sin of unbelief or that his intention was not to save every single person. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And, and hear this. And I don't know if anyone who rejects limited atonement can refute this. Thus, securing an eternal redemption. Let me say that one more time. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by, by, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secures the salvation of his people. He doesn't make salvation a possibility. He actually saves his people. The text does not say that Jesus did his part, and now we have to do our part in believing. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus actually secured, paid full the redemption of his people. That is why we can sing it as well, saints. That is why our soul is well now until the very end. Because Christ paid it all. Jesus Christ didn't die to merely remove the obstacles of salvation, nor did he die to make men redeemable. Rather, Jesus Christ actually redeemed and purchased his people on the cross. When Jesus redeemed you, he didn't come with a partial payment. He came with the full payment and he bought you out of that slave market of sin. Fully accomplished his work in redeeming a people for his own namesake and for his father and for the spirit and for his own glory. Hebrews 12, 2. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And hear this. Who for the joy for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we see limited atonement there? If Jesus didn't actually save anyone by his death, then he wouldn't have faced the cross with joy, but rather anxiety. Because if we say that Christ only made salvation a possibility, then he went to the cross hoping that someone would believe. He went to the cross saying, man, I hope this is all for good. I hope that, man, I'm shedding this blood for somebody. But if you say that Jesus Christ only made salvation a possibility, then what you have to agree with is this, is nobody could have been saved. It could have been a wasted sacrifice. And then you have double jeopardy. You have Jesus dying on the cross, an innocent person, but also people going to hell. The joy that was set before him was the joy that he would receive in glorifying his father through redeeming his people. And he, he went to the cross knowing that he was going to accomplish all the work that the father had given him to do. Saints, that is what taught, that's what taught, this is what is taught in scripture, that Jesus only died for those whom the father had given to him. It is the elect and only the elect that are the recipients of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the last point, which is the practical implications of Christ's atoning work. Um, What is the joy that we receive from the doctrine of limited atonement? And I just have one practical observation and one thing you can take away. When we think about the doctrine of limited atonement, what, what we must first rejoice over is my salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ. That my salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ. If you are a universalist, if you are an Arminian, you cannot say that with full confidence. Only the Calvinists can fully trust that Christ fully accomplished my salvation on the cross. Only the Calvinist can say, as one chosen by God, that the Father sent his Son to save me from my sin. So when I think about the cross, when I think about Christ's atoning work, I can say with full confidence that my name was written on his heart. That he went to the cross to save me for my sins. The Father sent his son to save me. And in love, he sent his son to live a life of righteousness, not for the entire world, but for little old Isaiah, for, for, for little old Patrick or, or all of you guys. He came for a specific reason and for a specific person. In love, he sent his son to die in my place. In my place, he stood. On the cross, in love, he sent his son to exchange my sin and my unrighteousness. It was my sin, saints, my evil, wicked sin that was imputed to Christ. Not every other sin in the world, not everybody's sin, but but my own. And in exchange, his obedience and righteousness was given to me in love. The Father sent his son to die in my place. Saints, only the Calvinists can say 
that I have been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Saints, only the Calvinists can, be, can, can fully believe the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. What do, I mean, what do I mean by that? Because we don't put limits in God in terms of who he can save and who he cannot save. We all have a doctrine. We all hold to the doctrine of sovereignty of God. It's just some are consistent with it and some are not. Some say that, man, doc, yeah, God is in control. He's in control of my finances. He can control my, church, uh, my children, my life, and all that. But when it comes to who he can save, when it comes to who he allows to enter into heaven, nah, he can't be in control of that. that that's a little far-fetched. We, we can't give God the same freedom that we have. Because none of you guys invite me to your house, but you invite other people, right? We can't put limits on God. We believe that God can save whoever he wants to save. And Christ can die for whoever he wants to die for. What business is mine? Now let's consider what happens when you deny limited atonement. If Christ's atonement is unlimited, and he universally dies to save every human being, then we have to ask, is my salvation fully accomplished by Christ? Not completely, but since I can still suffer the judgment and condemnation for my sins and unbelief. If Christ's death was a general and universal atonement, then Christ's offer of salvation becomes provisional, depending upon my response. Sort of like I have to actualize and turn on the atonement. If Christ's death was a general and universal death, and if we deny limited atonement, then Christ doesn't actually save me, but he makes salvation only a possibility. He just only removes the barriers that guards me from or keeps me away from salvation. But he doesn't actually save me. Saints, we don't need a possible savior. We need an actual savior. Saints, we don't need a savior that is unsure if his sacrifice is going to be accepted. We need a savior who knows wholeheartedly and can go to the cross with joy knowing that someone his elect not someone that one that he has known in eternity past will accept it will believe if we reject limited atonement then we are trusting in a potential savior not a victorious savior not a savior who's worthy of worship but a savior who potentially only saved me. And ultimately, saints, if we do hold to that, if we do say that Christ potentially saved me or, or he removed the barriers, then God doesn't get full glory because Christ does his part and you have to do your part. You have to believe in order for the atonement, in order for his sacrifice to be actualized, to be effectual. So when we get to heaven, you don't throw your cross to God. You keep it on because you are a, a, a co-redeemer in your salvation. Christ's um, limited atonement accomplishes my salvation, which gives us eternal life, which gives us eternal life. We can also add that if one rejects limited atonement, um, they care more about the people who would be saved rather than the power in the death of Jesus Christ. You see, us Calvinists, when we say limited atonement, we are not limiting the power of the atonement. We are only limiting the people, the extent of the atonement. 
But saints, I would rather limit the people than limit the power. But even when we say limited atonement, it doesn't mean that only us are going to be in heaven. But there will be a vast majority, a vast number of people that no man can, num- can count or number in heaven. That is why I read Revelation 5 in the beginning. That in heaven there is, a, there is myriads upon myriads of people, thousands upon thousands of people who will be worshiping the spotless lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now one might say, why can't God save everyone effectually by the death of Christ? Why can't there, why can't there be both? Why can't everyone be saved? And also too, why can't it be effectual for all? My answer to that would be this. God wouldn't be free in salvation. It can't be both. It cannot be both. You have three choices. Either God saves everyone, God saves no one, or God saves someone. And which one of these is God free? In which one of these does God display the full range of his attributes? If he saves someone, or if he saves everyone, then we don't see God's wrath, power, and justice. If he saves no one, then we don't see his grace and mercy. But if God saves someone, then we see the full range of his attributes. We see that God has the freedom to be God. The king has the freedom to be the king. In redeeming some and not others, we see grace, mercy, loving kindness, faithfulness to the elect. And we also see justice, wrath to the reprobate. We see God on full display. Saints, we have a joy and a hope because of limited atonement, not a burden, not something that we, we should not with full confidence believe and hold on to. Since Christ died only for his sheep and fully accomplished the salvation of, uh, for his people, we can trust that our, our salvation, your salvation, saints, right now, You don't have to wait for the judgment day, but right now you are secured in Jesus Christ. We can trust that Christ or when Christ said it was finished or it is finished, everything was finished. He died for you. And right now he is interceding for you and he will bring you home to glory. Let's pray.